Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Good morning, Real Life Church. It's good to be with you again. I'm Jim Miller, and we are uh, in the middle of a great season together. Uh, I want to thank you before we get started for being a congregation that is so good at welcoming new people into our midst. And I've seen this, I've seen this a number of times in the last month, even, like the last four to six weeks, where somebody comes to church for the first time on a Sunday morning, and somebody from the congregation, without any prompting from me, goes in and introduces themselves to this person, takes them around the campus, introduces them to other people, and, and, and helps them take those next steps. You know, ask them, what, what is it that you're interested in? And if they have children, they show them the children's ministry. If they have teenagers, they show them the students' ministry. Uh, and I, I'll, even, I'll even call people out on this. I saw, uh, I saw Nancy do it in the last month. I saw Becky do it in the last month. And I saw Barbara do it in the last month, just on a Sunday morning walking around. And so thank you for being a congregation that invites. Uh, uh, the 24th, Sunday the 24th, 6 p.m., we have this Halloween party over on our Glendora campus, and it's going to be a great party. And the reason we do parties like that is not just because we like to have fun together as a community, although that is true as well, but because we want you to have vehicles through which you could invite people into our community to say, hey, come meet my friends. And people who might be nervous about going to church often will say yes to an absolutely free party that's open to the public. And so that's why we have this Halloween party. And so use that as an opportunity to invite people to come check out the church that you hang out with and then, and then be thinking of, so what's the next step? If they come to that and they like it, you can invite them to our Holy Smokes barbecue in November. You can invite them to church on a Sunday. If they're a friend of yours, you can invite them into your small group. Uh, but always be thinking that way. I, I appreciate the fact that you are a church that already sort of intuitively does that. That's how the church should be. And so uh, Halloween party this Sunday, not just for us to enjoy candy, uh, but for us to enjoy hospitality. So there you go. Um, I want to uh, uh, turn to something a little more serious now. Um, it, it is, uh, it's, you know, it continues to be a hard season in our world. Uh, and I heard a, a speaker this last week, we were at a staff conference, I heard a speaker say, it's not a season, it's an era. It's, it's longer than a season, it's an era. So we're in a new era and it's a hard era. Because I realize that some of you out there are uh, concerned uh, about um, what you feel like is government overbearance in your life, making you do things you don't want, get vaccines or, you know, vaccinate your kids. Or some of you out there are in a place where medically you're concerned about your health and you're concerned about what are the implications for me? What are the implications for my kids? Um, some of you are just concerned about the public on the whole. You're more concerned about what your next door neighbor is going to do than what the government's going to do. You're, you're more concerned about when are we going to get to a place where I'm not walking on eggshells around everyone all the time. Uh, and I think we're all in some place of disorientation in this era. Um, if we do nothing else in this era, I want us to learn to listen to God. I want us to listen to our Father who loves us and who will help us navigate the hardest eras in our history. I want us to learn to listen to God together. And so we're in this series of teachings now on the weekends called Listening to God. Because if, if nothing else comes out of the season, if we, if we unify around nothing else, I hope we unify around the voice of our shepherd. So today I want to look at another text in the scripture, 
which talks to us about how to listen to God. Uh, and uh, I'm going to uh, flesh out a little bit more of what we talked about when I taught us how to pray a couple weeks ago, when I showed you how I prayed. Today, I'm going to talk about how, how I read the Bible. Let's take a minute. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you call us through the hardest eras in our world, in our history. And I ask that you would walk with us today, that when the world is unstable and uh, health is unstable and public governance is unstable and public behavior is unstable, that you are our rock and our foundation. You are that upon which we can stand without fear. So God, teach us to stand on you and to rest in you and to be at peace. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I want to read you one of my favorite psalms from the Bible. Psalms are, are a collection of poetry written about a thousand years before Jesus. Many of them were written by King David. Uh, and they, uh, they reflect on the, the life of faith from a first-person perspective. They capture the sense of being angry at the world or excited about God or sad and alone. All the, the range of emotions that faithful people go through, the Psalms give word to. And I like Psalm 19 because it tells us a lot about how God speaks to us. So listen to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So the psalm opens on a personification. Nature is talking, and it's not using words, but it's talking. And this is uh, reflective of something that will be written a thousand years later by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 1, where he says... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature can be known from what has been made so that we are without excuse for not believing. God's existence is clear to us from the world around us. And that might seem like a radical claim in a post-enlightenment rationalistic society where we feel like it's normal to be really doubtful about the existence of God. But you look at the history of our species, and in every era of history, in every culture, hum humanity has been overwhelmingly religious. We do not have trouble on the whole believing that there are things beyond the natural world. We rarely have trouble believing that there are supernatural powers and divine beings. Most human beings alive today do believe in something beyond the material world. And that's because you look at the the fascinating, ornate world around us and think there must be something bigger and more powerful than us out there because there's no way this complexity and this design and this beauty just popped into existence. And I think explanations to the contrary are strained. I remember talking to a guy who was a, an astronomy student uh, at the University of Texas, I believe. And uh, I asked him, uh, have, you, have you honestly never asked God to reveal himself. You've ever honestly never prayed and said, God, if you're there, show me. And he laughed. He goes, oh, yeah, I did this one time. I was sitting in my bedroom, and I prayed, if you're God, uh, if God, if you're there, show yourself to me. And he said, right when I prayed that, the, the clouds outside parted, and the sun shone through my bedroom window, and the room just lit up. But I laughed because I knew it was just a coincidence. So a guy, a guy who studied the stars, a guy whose love language was astronomy, prayed to God out there, and God used the nearest star to go, hi, how you doing? 
and he wrote it off. I think it takes some mental effort to, to reject the fingerprints of God that are written all over creation. At least that is what Psalm 19 tells us. Uh, it goes on, verse 4, uh, continuing in verse 4. In the, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion, champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And so God has created nature as a basic, a basic circuitry that provides for us. There is this rhythm of repetitive nature that provides for us things like the warmth that we need and the, 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 the food of the earth that provides for us. This is the language that a parent uses to speak to a newborn for, before the newborn learns a language. A parent learns to speak to a child or naturally speaks to a child in a circuit of feeding the child and changing the child's diapers and putting the child to bed and feeding the child and changing the diapers that never end and putting the child to bed. And that repetitive circuit provides for the child in a way that makes the child pre-language know that they are loved. And in a good and healthy family, the child starts to sense that it is being cared for before it has the words to say, I am being cared for. And before you had the words to say, Jesus loves me, God put into existence a circuitry of creation that provides for you the, the warmth of the sun and the, the goodness of nature and the, the providence of the land. God puts all of this into place before you know he's there so that you are born into the world with a sense that there is something out there that is providing for me. Think about that the next time you watch a sunset. And now the psalm pivots. It goes from talking about God speaking through nature to God speaking through the scripture. Theologians will say this is going from general revelation, the revelation through nature, uh, revelation that everybody can see, general revelation, to special revelation or specific revelation, the revelation of God speaking directly through the scriptures. Uh, and you need both, but it is the special revelation that saves us. It is the special revelation that reveals to us the character and nature of God. Verse 7, the law of the, the, law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And when he's talking about the law here, this would have been before the Old Testament had even been assembled. He's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. God's, God's revelation of here I am and here are my laws. Here's what I want for your world. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And this is actually a common uh, image used in uh, Jewish writing and in the Talmud and in the, the reflections of the rabbis because uh, it, it's the habit in the Jewish culture on Rosh Hashanah, on their, their new year, to take apples and dip them in honey and eat them as sort of a, a promise of the sweetness of the year that is to come. Uh, but they also, they have a sort of a double uh, message here in this image. The Jewish rabbis like to compare God to the bees, 
right? Bees that produce honey. Because you don't want to be the recipient of the, the fierceness of a thing that can sting you. But you know that it can also provide for you something sweet, right? The bees are dangerous, but, but if, you're, if, you, if you play your cards right, right? If, you're, if you can get close to them in a way that doesn't provoke them, it produces something sweet. Uh, and that's, that's the next verse. By, your, by them your servant is warned, in keeping there is great reward, right? There, you're warned, there's, there's danger here. The, the bee can be fierce, but by drawing close to God, God's commands, there's something sweet that comes out of them. So now finally, the psalm goes into a third little section, and it ends in a confession. I see God in nature, and then in God's words to me, I see who God is. I see how solid and reliable God is. And then it, it ends in confession. Verse 12, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You can't hear God without reflecting on yourself. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it penetrates into the, into the self, uh, separating the, the soul from the spirit and joints from marrow. It judges the attitudes of the heart. You, you can't read it and walk away unscathed. The, the word of the Lord is dangerous. It penetrates into our conscience. So this is Psalm 19, this, this beautiful picture of God's law, of the fact that God reveals himself in nature like a parent to an infant, shows us that he is there to provide for us, that he loves us, that he, he wants good things for us. And then we come to the place where out of curiosity, we turn to the revelation of God. And say, wait a minute, who is this behind the world that I see? And we find in Jesus a God who loves us and who cherishes us and who longs for us to turn away from brokenness towards the God who can heal us. John Calvin, a great reformer of the 16th century, said that the, the scriptures are like, are like spectacles, are like eyeglasses. He called them the spectacles of scripture. He says, he says, nature reveals to us who God is. Romans, Romans 1, we can see God's invisible qualities in nature. But, but our, our lives are so broken by sin. Our, our vision is so blurry. We can't see who God is by nature alone. We need the spectacles of Scripture to make God clear. It's only by, by reading about who God is that we find God's, God's true identity, and especially God's identity in Jesus revealed to us in the Bible. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not making an argument that, uh, that a lot of you know, pre-sophomores would, would accuse me of here. I'm not making a circular argument that the Bible is true because the Bible says so. Right? Anybody who's reached at least sophomore year of high school knows that that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we, when we experience God for ourselves, when we, we have the inclination of God's existence, or when Jesus reveals himself to us, when we begin to experience walking in the Spirit and exploring the, the historical uh, story of the life of Jesus and asking whether or not that could be true. 
we can then rightfully look into the Bible and say, now how did Jesus view the scriptures that came before him? And how did the biblical authors view the scriptures on the whole? And how should that inform our understanding of the scriptures? I'm not making a circular argument here. I'm saying that once we are committed to Jesus, we can rightly ask, where do the scriptures fall? Where do the scriptures land in our experience and pursuit of God? And I want to tell you two things the Bible isn't before I tell you what the Bible is. There are two different things that I'm afraid people in our world today suspect of the Bible that the Bible never offers. One of them uh, it comes from uh, sort of a story in uh, ancient Greece. There's a, a story in the, actually it was in Ephesus, which is actually not Greece, it's Turkey. It's just north of Greece. There, there was a story in Ephesus that in the great temple of Artemis that was in Ephesus, they had a, uh, they had a statue of Artemis. And the, the legend was that the statue of Artemis had fallen out of the heavens that they just found it. They saw it fall out of the heavens one day. They found it on the ground. They went and picked it up and went and put it in the temple of Artemis and began worshiping it. I suspect that is not what happened. But that's the story that they have. And there are people in our world today who think that the Bible just fell out of the heavens and landed on the ground and we got it and it was God's word to us. If they don't say that explicitly, they at least assume that in the back of their minds. That's not where the Bible came from. The Bible didn't fall out of heaven. The Bible was assembled over a course of about 300 years with different churches and pastors saying, hey, we're reading this letter and this letter. Which ones are you reading in your church? And the other one would say, we're reading this letter and that letter, but not this one. How about you guys? And, and for, for 300 years, that's how the churches used the scriptures. It was, it was all a matter of practicality. Which one seems to come from the apostles and which one is best for use in the churches and which one matches with the stuff that we've already been teaching since John founded this church? And it wasn't, wasn't until an a early church father finally wrote the list of 27 letters says, here, these are the ones that go in the New Testament. These are the ones we're sticking with. Uh, the book of Revelation almost didn't make it. But there was no council where they debated. There was no hot debates. There was no burning of secret books. It was just a question of pragmatics. Which of these scriptures come from a reliable early source and seem to bless the churches? And that's how the Bible came to be. It didn't fall out of the heavens like they said the statue of Artemis did. So it's not that. And, and secondly, some people in our modern world today think that the Bible is a lot like the way the Oracle of Delphi worked in ancient Greece. The Oracle of Delphi was this sort of prophetess and, and people could go and ask the prophetess what the gods believed and she would go into this trance and, and speak out prophecies of what the gods were saying. So, some modern scholars think that she was on some kind of drug-induced trip and other people will say no, it was some kind of demonic possession. But whatever it was, she lost her own capacity to think and supposedly, the legend goes, just let the, the gods speak through her. Now, in our modern day today, some people think that that's what happened to the biblical authors. They took up pen in hand, and God's spirit possessed them, and their eyes rolled back in their head, and they just wrote down whatever God told them to write. If you're possessed and lose all your own faculties, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's a demon. Because God doesn't force himself on people that way. The Bible wasn't verbally dictated from the skies to authors who couldn't think about what they were writing. Instead, God uses the messy and broken circumstances of humanity to reveal his truth. And the Christian church would be a lot better off today 
we would take some time and verse ourselves in our own scriptures and what they say and where they came from rather than acting panicked and defensive every time anyone says something different than what we've always assumed. The Bible didn't just fall out of the sky and it wasn't a verbal dictation from the clouds. Instead, the Bible came about through very practical means. The early pastors began to say, hey, I've got a letter from Peter. I've got a letter from James. This is really useful. My congregation grows when we read this. We need to use these letters. They get together on their iPhone 12s. Actually, no, that was an earlier generation. They get together on their iPhone 3s and they call each other. Go, Which ones are you using? Let's use that one. And that's how God works. Paul, in his last letter, what we think is his last letter, 2 Timothy. Because in this letter, he starts to talk about how his time is about up, how he's, he's run his, va- his race and he's fulfilled his, his life's purpose. He talks about the Bible at the end of his life. So here's a guy who, it, it ends up 13 of his letters end up in our Bible. Here's him reflecting on the scriptures themselves, what would have been the Hebrew scriptures of his day. He says, all script, this is, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's Paul after a lifetime of ministry and planting churches and introducing people to Jesus and working miracles. And when he gets the chance to say what the Bible is, he doesn't say, oh, it's this great philosophical spiritual document. If you're into spiritual navel gazing, this is the best navel gazing you'll ever do. He says, this thing is really useful. This thing is really practical. And so a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about how I pray. Today, I want to talk to you about how to read the Bible. And you may be somebody who reads the Bible all the time. You may, see, you may say, this is elementary. I already know how to read it. For you who already know how to read it, I want to ask you, do you know how to teach somebody else how to read it? If somebody asked you, what do I do? I've never read it before. Do you have your, your five steps ready to name off, off the tip of your tongue because you've taught people how to read it before? Here are my five. One, when you go to read the Bible, pray first. Stop and ask God to reveal himself to you. Psalm 19 says that everything in our creation is God's revelation. God reveals himself to us in the world, and then he reveals himself to us in the printed word, and then he calls us to personal confession, to relationship with him. The act of reading the Bible is not like reading the newspaper where you just want to know about what's going on. It's certainly not reading a, a history book where you just want to know facts from long ago. Reading the Bible is an invitation to a relationship with the one who wrote it. So begin by praying first. Secondly, be disciplined and set goals. And I realize it's easier for some of us to say that than for others. At least set a goal of saying, I'm going to mark out a little time every day to read some of the Bible. If you read no more than a verse a day, great. If you can read a paragraph a day, even better. If you can read a chapter a day, excellent. If you read a chapter of the Bible every day, and a chapter by chapter, if you don't know it, it's like half a page, you'll go through the whole Bible in a year, in three years. If you read three chapters a day, you can go through the whole thing in a year. But be disciplined enough to carve out time and say, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit every day. Dallas Willard has said, most of us go at reading the Bible like taking a shower with one drop of water every five minutes. You're not going to get very clean very fast at that rate. 
And you're not going to get very well versed in the Bible the way most of us read it. So be disciplined enough to carve out time. Give yourself the, the, the discipline and the practice of reading it every day. Thirdly, read from the inside out. Now, the Bible reads differently than any other book. Books in English, we pick up, we read from left to right. In certain languages of the world, you read from right to left. In Hebrew and some of the Asian languages, you read from right to left or top to bottom. The Bible reads from the, the inside, from the middle outwards. Start with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read the basic story of God when he walked the earth. And then realized all of the law and the prophets before that points forwards to the coming of the Messiah. And all of the, the stories of the early church and the, the letters of the early church put, point backwards as reflections on the coming of the Messiah. Jesus as at the heart of the Bible. Start in the middle first and read from the center outwards. That's how to go at this particular book. Fourthly, read it in community. Read it with other people. God has chosen to reveal himself through the works of human hands, just as when the Bible was put together. And in the, the gathering of small groups where we read the Bible together, we find that there is wisdom that God has hidden among our peers that he wants us to uncover when they ask the questions we've been wanting to ask. And they share insights that we've never thought of before. The Bible is a communal document it was put together by communities, and it's meant to be read in community. And finally, fifthly, ask four questions uh, as you read the Bible. Anytime you read a, a passage from the scriptures, if you ask these four questions, you can have a pretty good Bible study based on these four questions. Read any section of the Bible that you want, and then ask, what does it say about God? What does it say about me? What promises does it make? And what commands does it give? Those four questions will launch a pretty good Bible study every time. Those are my five practical steps to getting into reading the Bible. Because Paul at the end of his life said, hey, you know what? This book is pretty useful for teaching and correcting and training. That's why it's there for us. The Bible in its practicality has changed the history of the world. Not just because it was good for spiritual navel-gazing, but because it was useful. It, it spread like wildfire across the Mediterranean soon after the, the life of Jesus. And then through the Middle Ages, it burned up through Europe, and even in the 8th century, got as far as China. Today, it's worldwide, and over 2 billion people around the world read it and reflect on it and trust it. It has shaped the history of human institutions in ways that we cherish. The early universities were formed not by skeptics and atheists, but by Christians saying it looks like the universe was created by God to reveal to us who God is. What if we take seriously the study of this universe? It, it looks like in the scriptures we can immerse ourselves in God's word in a way that deepens our understanding of him. What if we study the, the letters and the writings? Today, the Bible is read day to day by guides like Francis 
Collins, the, the head of the Human Genome Project, and John Polkinglore, a professor of physics at Cambridge University, and Alvin Plantinga, professor of philosophy at Notre Dame, and uh, a guy named, this is where I, this is where I stop, Dan, what's his name? Dan Hastings, professor of aeronautics at MIT. It's read by professors at Stanford and Berkeley and Cambridge and Harvard and others. And I only name those specific instances to say the simplistic view that the media likes to give, that the Bible is for superstitious ignoramuses, is itself a simplistic view that ignores the fact that the Bible is read day to day by brilliant minds who are shaped by it. When we enter into the habit of reading the scriptures, we go from from that direct experience of being in prayer with God to seeing the landscape of those who have prayed before us, of those to whom God specially revealed himself that were captured in the writings of the scriptures. Prayer is the end game. We want to enter into a relationship with Jesus every day, but we can't go around the Bible to get there. It's through the Bible that we see the the groundwork, the foundation that has been laid for us by those in the community of faith who have believed before us. There's a great illustration that captures how important it is for us to have the Bible when we go about the business of seeking God. You you can't can't go around it. Uh, And this illustration comes, uh, again, from C.S. Lewis, a Christian author and one one of my great heroes. Lewis says that, he remembers speaking at one point to the, the Royal Air Force. He was speaking about theology, and a, a guy stood up uh, in, the, in the crowd and uh, began to question all of Lewis's teachings on doctrine. And this is uh, what the man said. He says, I have no use for all that stuff. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. C.S. Lewis now answers, Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with that man. I think he had probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he was really turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, It is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map, but the map is going to be more use than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. 
we may have direct experiences of God revealing himself, first through nature, but, but we need the spectacles of scripture to see him clearly. And while sitting and reading an old dusty book from 2,000 years ago may be more work than most of us want to put in, it, not as real and as vibrant as the mountaintop experience we had at the Christian summer camp, nonetheless, it's the map of those to whom God revealed himself that were captured by the early church to say, here it is, this is the foundation. Everything else can be judged in light of this. And so, may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us in the wor world and in the word. And I ask that you would teach us to be students of your word, that we'd learn it well and commit it to our hearts and obey it faithfully. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you again. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.